Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Yes, the stories are my family's and the recipes are quite unique, but together they came to tell a collective Palestinian narrative. And I really felt the need to show it to the world and also, more importantly, to preserve it for my own children and an entire upcoming Palestinian generation. Reem Cassis is a Jerusalem-born writer, also author of The Palestinian Table, which includes recipes from three generations of her own family. Filled with simple homestyle recipes, this is a cookbook that makes sense for the modern American kitchen. But before we get to my chat with Reem Cassis, we're headed to the forests of the western Indian state of Gujarat, where reporter Shana Sheely is on the ground with a group of nomadic camel herders. It's nighttime. The camels are wearing small bells that chime as the herders continue on their journey. They're really elegant. Long legs. Wow, they're really big. 
They stop and begin milking the camels, capturing the milk in steel pans. This nomadic group has herded camels and consumed their milk for literally centuries. Back from her trip to India, we have Shana Shealy here in the studio to tell me about what she learned and how camel's milk is marketed as a health drink. Shana, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So almond milk, soy milk, rice milk, camel milk. It's now a health drink, uh, I guess, in India. Yeah, so recently a brand called Amul, which is sort of like the Coca-Cola of India, it's a very large beverage brand, decided to market camel milk as a health food. And they're getting the camel milk from nomadic camel herders in northwest India called Madharis. Um, The herders tell stories of camel milk curing everything from pregnancy ailments to blindness to tuberculosis. The new research is related to diabetes. So some scientific research says that camel milk can regulate blood sugar and insulin secretion for type 1 diabetics. So you spend a day with these folks. Is there a schedule during the day when the camels go out? uh, They're milked in the morning, milked in the evening. What, What does it look like? Yeah, they wake up before dawn really early and go out. The first thing they do is milk the camels, and then they take them out, and they basically walk all day. I spoke with 10- and 12-year-old Taj Muhammad and Abu Bakr. Here's what their daily schedule sounds like. Uh, we are walking uh, in the uh, morning 5.30 o'clock and then uh, start our camel journey. And then uh, 6 o'clock we are starting to milk. And if uh, we are hungry, then we drink camel milk because uh, camel milk is uh, very strong and very healthy. So if I, ha- I am hungry, then I drink camel milk. So you spoke, also spoke with the company's managing director. Is he confident that this has a future? Uh, and if so, why? Yes. So I spoke to the managing director of Amul. His name is R.S. Sodi. And he is certain that the product will succeed, especially given the growing number of diabetics in the country. His main concern is the taste of camel milk. He says... A lot of Indians just aren't used to the taste, which is also similar to my concern and experience with the milk. Now, this is a food show, so let me ask the obvious question. What does it taste like? Uh, I've read that it's uh, uh, sour and salty, which I don't—is it an acquired taste? It must be. Yeah, I spent a day um, roaming with the camel herders through the forest— And when we got back from walking miles and miles, I took a seat around one of the grass reed huts and someone handed me a steel bowl of the milk and it was frothy and warm. I think you have this on tape. Yeah. Let's play it. Okay. I'm trying the camel milk. Mm. Whoa. Interesting. (laughs) It's really strong. Whoa. I tried to be discreet about it because um, <laughs> everyone was watching me <laughs> and I couldn't I couldn't drink the whole thing and I apologized and I sort of like slid the bowl over to my interpreter um, and he took the bowl in his hand and just slurped it down in an instant. You drink it, yeah. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> How is it? Yeah, good. Um, And he grew up on camel milk, so he's used to the taste. But for me, it was a little bit challenging. So the herders, their economy's based on camel's milk. That is, they actually sell it. That's what they do for a living. Yeah, they make most of their income from camel milk. They are nomadic. And they're poor. They can't afford, when someone in the community gets sick, they can't afford to go to the hospital. And some of the community elders that I spoke with were really excited about selling the camel milk commercially because of the economic benefits. Mostly right now they're selling to local chai stalls. So people who make camel milk tea or people who make camel milk ice cream is really big in the summer. And so right now the market is very, very small for them. And they're really excited So what was the most surprising moment or the thing you just did not expect when you went to visit them? I think the most surprising moment was um, we were walking with the camels and the camels have these bells attached to their necks. So when they walk, they make this beautiful lulling sound. 
And we're walking, and all of a sudden, I hear a motorcycle. And there's a, this guy. He's about 45 years old, I later learn. And he rolls up to the camel herders um, on his motorcycle, and he takes down these two huge steel vessels and asks for milk. And so the camel herders start just right there, start milking the camels, um, fill his jugs. And I started talking to him. How did he know to come here? Does he do this often? Why does he drink camel milk? And he said, you know, he lives nearby. And and whenever he hears the sounds of the bells, he hops on his motorcycle Mm. and follows the sound to get camel milk. He has type 1 diabetes and he drinks the camel milk medicinally. And I asked him how much he paid for the camel milk. And he said, I don't pay for it. I get it for free. And so later I asked one of the community elders about this man who had gotten the camel milk for free. And the community elder, Amitaju, said that it's part of his Islamic tradition to help people who are sick. So if Mm. someone comes to him and is sick, he gives them camel milk for free as charity. And that's part of his religious practice. I read somewhere that Ahmed Taju, the person you just referred to, said that his father went mute at one point. Uh, He went to the hospital, and when he came back, he drank nothing but warm camel's milk for five days and was restored could uh, speak mm-hmm. again. Is that is Yeah, it- so when he was at the hospital, he was on all of these western medicines. Nothing was working, and they took him back into the thorn forest and they said, "Okay, for 5 days you're only drinking warm camel milk." And after those 5 days, he started speaking again, and Amitaju told me this story as sort of like, you know, look what our camel milk can do. So you mentioned uh, you went to a chai stall. Did you try the the camel milk chai? Yes, it was delicious. Well, now, wait a minute. You said that you tried the, the warm, just-milked uh, camel's milk, and it was sour and salty and fatty, but the chai you liked. Is that because of the spice and the sweet in it? Yes, it was doused with sugar, um, had a ton of fresh ginger, so it was spicy and sweet and really fatty, and it tasted like warm ice cream. It was just really, really good. Hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the way to do it. If you're going to drink camel milk, have it in ice cream or have it in chai, which probably isn't the best for diabetics, but hmm. probably not. it was very good. Shana, thank you so much. Uh, camel's milk may become a commercial product in India. Thank you. Thank you. That was Shayna Shealy. She's a multimedia journalist from Birmingham, Alabama. Most recently, she's been reporting on food systems, religion, and women's health and safety from Jerusalem. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, as well as Spotify. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Moulton, and I will take some of your calls. Sarah Moulton is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am ready to take those questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Emma. Hi, Emma. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Ireland. Ireland? Wow. How can we help you? Um, I have a meringue issue. I think we all have a yeah, meringue I'm issue. Like, okay, welcome to the I think, <laughs> I think meringue is a big issue always because <laughs> egg whites are so finicky. Anyway, go ahead. Uh-huh, absolutely. So um, I have a catering company, and I've made meringues in my own apartment and also in the commercial kitchen. And when I make them in my apartment, they always work out perfectly. And when I make them in the commercial kitchen, every time they come out sort of mottled so they don't get like a crunchy outside and they're sort of dimply. And what is different? Do you use the same pots and the same egg whites? The same egg whites, yeah. Um, I had a different whisk at home, which I actually took into work, so I used the same whisk. And the oven would be the main difference. Ah. And you let them sit in the oven for a long time with the oven off after you're finished cooking them? Yes. Yeah, it has to be the oven. I wonder whether, if you have a really good oven thermometer, I wonder if the ovens are calibrated to the same temperatures. It sounds to me like that could uh-huh. be a problem, right? Because yes. ovens are never, yeah. never, ever what the, the you same. think they are. No. Your oven is at a different temperature in the catering kitchen than it is at home. Let me ask you, okay. to, when you're in the catering kitchen also, are there other people cooking at the same time that you're there? 
No, no, it's always just me. Because I was going to say, if it's a steamy environment, you know, perhaps there's liquid Uh getting into your egg whites. But that's why I was also asking if you're using the same bowl to beat the egg whites in, the same everything. Is it all clean? Is it oil-free? You know, etc. Yeah. Are either of these ovens convection ovens, and are you using the convection? Oh, that's another possibility, yeah. Sarah, you got I excited. I, I asked did. a good question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> because my oven at home is a regular fan oven. They're both electric. But the one in work also has a steam option, oh. which doesn't work. But I guess other people might sometimes turn it on and... Yeah, if you have a steam injection, that's going to be yeah, a problem. But you said there's a fan, so it's convection. You use the convection in both? Is it convection is sorry. Is that a fan? Yes, that's that... a fan. Yeah. Yeah, I use the fan for both. Well, yeah, that could be a problem too because the fans, as you know, are little tiny fans at the back of the oven, and it may uh-huh. be that the amount of convection—that is, the way the the air is being circulated in a commercial oven in a catering company—might be a very different thing than the little tiny ten-dollar fan in the back of your home oven. Uh huh. So it would be interesting to see if. You shut the con- I would shut off the I, fan uh, at yeah. the catering company. Yeah. I agree with Chris. And see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people for years made meringues without a convection right. oven. So it's not like you can't do it. And maybe that forced air has got some sort of moisture in it, too. You never know. And that would make sense with the dimpling, as yeah. though it's like the fan kind of pressing on it. Yeah. It may not okay. be given enough time to set properly. I don't know. Uh, Try that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll give it a go. All right, Emma. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thanks Thanks for taking my call. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a complaint, or just want to try to stump us, give us a ring. That number is 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843. Or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? My name is Lorraine Doyle. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. How can we help you today? I have a problem with a rather unusual food allergy. I am allergic to coffee. Oh, how sad. I get that all the time. But, you know, you can't miss what you've never had. Good point. Did you ever have some coffee once? Oh, yeah. I was at a party one time, bit into an espresso truffle immediately broke out in hives and had my throat close up. Yeah, yeah. Really? Ended up having to go to the emergency room. Yeah, it's not good. So uh, you want a substitute for coffee, I guess? Yes. Here's a weird good timing department. One of my editors, my editorial director, was in Tunisia two months ago, and he brought back with him, he likes to bring back little gifties, and it's a date seed coffee. Really? Yeah. Wow. And... um, Hmm. I admit I've not tried it, but I think people in the kitchen thought it was actually not bad. That would be one substitute. Well, you know, another one is chicory. Right, chicory. Have you ever had chicory coffee? No, I haven't. If you can't drink coffee, it's not a bad substitute and more available than uh, date Date seed seed, coffee, which is a little odd. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. That's great advice. Lorraine, thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843, or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Becky from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Becky. What is your question today? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the podcast in which you were talking about steaming chicken breasts, and I was wondering, how would you season that? Would you put aromatics in the liquid? Would you follow it with a sauce? You take a stock pot, and uh-huh. you take one of those steamer baskets that opens up like a I call flower. them hippie steamers. Yeah, hippie steamers. You put your boneless, skinless chicken breasts, you could pour them on it, put it in the water, which has some soy sauce. You bring it up to 175. Turn off the heat and let it sit. You're leaving it in the steamer. It's sitting in a steamer basket. It's just a way of getting the chicken breast off the bottom of the stock pot. It's in the liquid, submerged. Oh, it's, it's submerged. It's not being steamed. I see. No, it's being poached. Got it. It's a very gentle way of essentially doing a sous vide with a sous vide. You can do the same thing with a whole chicken. You can put it into liquid to cover with some ginger scallions, a simmer for 25 minutes, turn off the heat, put the top on, let it sit. You could also steam if you wanted. I've steamed fish with great success, you know, in a steamer sit over, and you would absolutely have aromatics, have ginger and scallions and garlic and, you know, wine and water underneath the fish. 
it picks up nice flavor. But I haven't done chicken breasts. The reason you add soy sauce is it's full of salt. Yeah, and, and umami. That, and that will add flavor, but it will also keep the chicken breast from drying out. Huh. So okay. it's fake sous vide, Okay, got it. And then you'd make a sauce. You could do a pesto or tremolo, whatever you want, to add to the top of it. What would you make as a sauce since you are French trained? Well, it depends on what was in the aromatics. If it was just soy sauce, you know, that sort of salt, so you could go any which way. I mean, you could just make an herb butter and put it on top afterwards. But I guess the point of steaming it is to keep it lean. Is that why you want to do it? You wanted to keep it lean? Yeah. You could make a Chinese dressing, mix soy sauce 50-50 with water, add a little toasted sesame oil to it. Yeah. Add some Mm -hmm. chopped chives to it. Yeah. You could add a little bit of sweetness to that if you wanted as well, or a little chili oil to that if you wanted. Just whisk it as a vinaigrette. Make a vinaigrette. Yeah, and vinaigrettes uh, are great. Which I, mean, I do that all the time yeah. and add some spices. I've used sitar a lot lately, Z-A apostrophe mm-hmm. A-T-A-R, which goes with everything I've found. Uh, <laughs> and that goes great in salad dressing, and that would go great over chicken. The thing I like about it is you can't really overcook it because the liquid's not that hot. It never goes above 175. Yeah, and so the window there for perfection is wide. And the liquid is at 175 before you put the chicken in or the chicken's in as you bring it up to 175? I think you bring it up to 175 then turn it off when it hits 175. But the chicken's in there the whole time. I believe that's correct. All right. Well, it makes sense. If it doesn't go above 175, it can't get overcooked. And the temperature right. will drop slightly when you turn it off, so then the inside of the chicken will get up to... 160. 160. To 165. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up next, my conversation with Reem Cassis, author of The Palestinian Table, after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. 
A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Reem Cassis is a Jerusalem-born writer and cookbook author. Her latest work is The Palestinian Table a gastronomic journey across Palestine with 150 authentic recipes. This is a cookbook that combines local customs, anecdotes, and stories, along with recipes, all of which makes perfect sense for the 21st century American kitchen. So let's go back in time. You talk about the Levant before borders, people moving Mm -hmm. around in the Middle East. Uh, Could you just talk about that? Because I think that's a a time that that none of us remember or know much about. Right. Well, I mean, this is going very far back, but my great-grandmother, she came from Syria to Palestine where she married my great-grandfather. And, you know, when she came along, she brought, obviously, her bridal trunk and a lot of different fabrics and uh, food items. And obviously, she brought a lot of her recipes with her as well. And these continue to be passed down through my family. Now, as you can see, when there's all this kind of movement between the different, what is now different countries, obviously the recipes also moved along and people started cooking, you know, the same things that were being cooked in different areas. So even nowadays, if you look at the different villages in uh, Palestine and different villages in Lebanon, there's variations between them. But I think this stretches far back before to even when we were a single area and people were just marrying freely and moving around freely. And now the differences maybe are becoming more obvious and more nuanced because it's not as open and free as it was before. So you grew up in Jerusalem, right, until you were 17? Yes. We're all Palestinians. We're Israeli citizens. Um, My father is from the northern part of the country, so close to the Lebanese border. Mm -hmm. My mother is from a village closer to the center. So even there, you notice differences and nuances in the cooking. I grew up in Jerusalem, and there it's a melting pot. It's You have people from all different areas of the country and also, you know, local people, and you notice the differences there as well. So one of the things we've been talking about a lot in America and at Milk Street is, you know, what is dinner, uh, what is a meal? Mm. And one of the mm-hmm. things I find fascinating is there's a different answer to that question uh, every place, every time I go to a different place. So, <laughs> so for in, in the world of Palestinian cooking... You know, mm-hmm. what, what is a meal or what are the different answers to that question? I mean, it's, I wrote about this in the book where I said a meal for us is not the standard first course, main course, and side and dessert, if you will. It's, it's a m- much more family-style type of occasion where you have a lot of different dishes that make up an entire meal. So you might have a rice dish next to a stew dish, but you would still have maybe a yogurt uh, salad on the side, some olives, some pickles. So when you get together for a meal, there are a lot of different components. Um, At the end of every meal, for example, my father always finishes it off with a piece of bread and an olive, which is customary for a lot of Palestinians to do, actually. Um, So, you know, our meals are a much more holistic affair than a separated one where you can really delineate and say, this is a side dish, this is a main course, this is an appetizer. It's more of a holistic thing. So you talk about your father's fried eggs. And um, I, a friend of mine uh, has a restaurant in, in Cambridge called Oleana in Boston. And she mm-hmm. once told me that it's uh, her secret to her success was just sitar. That's all you need to know. <laughs> Put sitar on everything. And I found that sitar is... Is, it's true. You can put on eggs. You can put it on chicken. You can mm-hmm. put on anything. 
So your father fries eggs with sitar and sumac on it. Um, yes. Which, which is interesting. Could you just talk about sumac for a second? I know there's a lot of Palestinian cooking where you put tablespoons or handfuls of sumac, like on chicken. It's true. So just yes. tell people what sumac is and, and what role it plays in, in your style of cooking. So sumac is actually, it grows on shrubs. It's a kind of berry that's very sour. And then we actually make our own at home the same way we do with za'atar. And do, so my father generally buys these berries fresh. He dries them at home and then he hmm. grinds them himself. It lends a very sour flavor to things. Now, one of the most traditional Palestinian food combinations, which is um, uh, the onions and the sumac, they actually are some people would call it the national dish of Palestine, sakhan, which is a taboon bread layered with the onion and sumac mixture and topped with grilled chicken. But again, you know, we use it in salads, fatouche, it's very common to use it. And my father sprinkles it on frike soup just because whenever we had sakhan, we had the, that soup on the side. Um, but it's also, um, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but it's a component of za'atar, especially, you know, the za'atar mix that is made at home. Sumac does play a part in that too. Let's talk about flatbreads. You know, the uh, America, Northern Europe doesn't have much of a, a tradition of flatbreads. Uh, and mm-hmm. although flatbreads, many of them are actually yeasted breads. Could you just talk mm-hmm. about uh, about the role of flatbreads in your cuisine, uh, whether you actually make the flatbreads at home or you go to a bakery? What are two or three of the most uh, common styles, et cetera? So historically, most people made their bread at home. Uh, a lot of people, actually, it wasn't pita bread that they made. What they made was taboon or shrak bread, which is, um, again, it's a leavened bread, but it's much more, It's you have more water in it. So it's softer, it stretches out, you bake it on uh, stones. But nowadays, you know, with modern conveniences, most people buy their bread at bakeries. We still bake ours at home, even the pita bread. And I talk about this a lot in the book where, you know, bread to us is not just about dipping it in things like hummus or a different kind of dip. We use it almost as a utensil in our food. Whenever we're eating anything from stews to salads, you know, you use the bread to scoop up those, you know, those delicious flavors, the sauce that's left at the bottom of the plate. Like I said, at the end of the meal, sometimes you use a piece with olive. And it is, I would say, an integral part to our eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> so... Uh- you know, my concept of salad growing up in New England was pretty limited. Uh, just talk to me about how you'd think about putting a salad together. And first of all, what is Palestinian salad? So actually, I mean, I call it Palestinian salad just to kind of clarify that it's the most basic one in our repertoire. But I think so many cultures have this cucumber tomato mix. Um, but to me, when I think of salad, the first thing I think of is what's fresh, what's in season and what's available locally. And I think a lot of what dictates the flavor profile of our salads is the dressings that we use, which are actually quite simple. It's always olive oil and lemon. And then you could use garlic, you can use sumat, you can use different, you know, za'atar, as you mentioned in some cases. But to me, the most important thing is that the ingredients themselves are good because when you have very few of them, their flavor will really stand out. So you mentioned the tomato sumac salad, for example. We use something back home called bandora baladilla, which literally means organic or in-season tomato, and it's so fleshy. There's no seeds, no juice. It's just pure tomato flavor. And I've tried the salad with different kinds of tomatoes, and it's a whole other world when you use the ingredients that are in-season and ripe and local. So I think that's my first thought when I think of how to make a salad. You grew up deciding that you were, uh, you went to Wharton. uh, Yes. You got a... a, uh, cultural psychology from London School of Economics. I didn't know you could do that. Uh, And you were not going to be a cook or a housewife or someone who was going to stay at home and cook. But you have a daughter, Yasmin. You, at some point, decided that cooking was now important to you. For a lot of people, that's kind of an important thing. So how did that happen and why did that happen? So actually, I would say it started even before that. I have two daughters now, by the way. But um, when I first moved away to the U.S., um, I was 17, and I felt homesick when I got there. I missed my family. I missed her food. And, you know, I started calling my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, asking them for different recipes or how to recreate certain things without the same ingredients available. And I managed to find a sense of connection to home. Uh, through my cooking and these recipes. And obviously, I was learning a lot of different stories tied to them as well. 
But as you've probably read in the book, it was always I wanted to prove myself in a different way. I didn't want to end up in the kitchen. But then when I had my first daughter and I took some time off from work, in a way I kind of panicked. I thought, oh my God, she's not growing up with a huge Palestinian family. She's not growing up you know, back in Palestine the way I did. And I want her to have those same values, that same sense of connection to her culture. And food is one of the main ways that that happens. So I started looking back on all these things that I'd been collecting over the years, and I felt I have this treasure on my hand. And yes, the stories are my family's, and the recipes are quite unique, but together they came to tell, a, I guess, a collective Palestinian narrative. And I really felt the need to show it to the world, and also, more importantly, to preserve it for my daughter and my own children and an entire upcoming Palestinian generation. And that's how the idea for this book was born, and you know, one thing led to another, and we're here today. <laughs> Um, lentil, garlic, and pasta soup. I'm always on the lookout for mm. really simple mm-hmm. ideas. Uh, and I thought this was just one of those fabulous ideas. Could you just describe what this is? I love it. Um, so lentils are a staple ingredient in the Palestinian diet. They're extremely healthy. They're cheap. And we cook them in so many different ways. But this soup is probably one of my favorites. At its core, it's very simple. You're just boiling lentils and you're flavoring them with um, garlic. And the pasta that I substitute, uh, originally it's just a basic dough that we make, roll out very thin and chop into fettuccine-like slices. Uh, But I think it's the garlic at the end that you fry and add to it that gives it a real kick. So now let's move to desserts. And uh, I love puddings. uh, And there's a milk pudding, of course, with pistachios. Could you just talk about how you make that? So that's actually one of the easiest desserts in the book. You just boil some milk, and I like to add even heavy cream to it to give it a bit of a richer flavor, and you add some cornstarch at the end to thicken it, and you can use whatever flavoring you want. Traditionally, it's mastic, but you can also use um, rose water, orange blossom water. You can even use cardamom if you prefer, and then you just pour it into cups or plates, and then the topping options are also endless. You know, if I have some people coming over for a dinner party and I'm making a huge meal and I'm, you know, cramped for time at the end and I want a simple dessert, that's generally one of my go-to ones. It's delicious and it's easy. Toasted bread pudding with cream and pistachios. That, that was a mm-hmm. really interesting recipe. Could you talk about that one? You're right. I mean, you look at the ingredient list and you think, what? Bread and syrup and cream? How can that be good? But for some reason, the flavor is just very, it, you know, it, you, you put a scoop in your mouth and you think, wow, what is this? And in, at the end of the day, it's nothing but a toasted bread soaked in a flavored sugar syrup and topped with a unsweetened cream. And of course, you, you know, you can top it with pistachios to decorate it and add more crunch. But it's so simple and so delicious. So what do you think's happening here? Do you think with your friends that you see your style of cooking creeping into their style of cooking or their cooking creeping into yours? Or are you uh, very much focused on the cooking of your family still? I think it goes both ways. Over time, um, like, you know, I live abroad. I'm a mother of two kids. I'm working a lot of the time. And the way we used to cook in my family, the way we cooked historically, it's not always in alignment with the way we live today. So in many instances, I try to find shortcuts to make things easier without compromising on flavor. Um, In other cases, I'm catering to my daughter's taste, who are still quite young and not always keen to try everything I'm making. But as much as possible, I try to stick to the roots of what we make as, or what we've been making as a family for generations. And wherever possible, I either substitute ingredients based on what's available, shorten, make easier. And, you know, I cook things that aren't Palestinian at home as well, obviously. But to me, these are the foods when I need a reminder of home the most, when I have non-Palestinian friends coming over and I want to introduce them to our culture. Those are the things that I make. Uh, Bedouin tea. What's Bedouin tea? It sounds great. Um, So it's a variation of black tea. Uh, Bedouins are the desert dwellers, and they have this plant called meramiya, which is essentially sage. And so we mix that with uh, a bit of cinnamon and cardamom, and it just adds a richness and depth to the black tea. My Mm -hmm. aunt actually taught me that recipe. There was a Bedouin lady that she used to get her yogurt and milk from, and that's the tea that they would drink. And it's, it's a fantastic, easy recipe to just 
even if you have the spices ready on the side, you just dump them in, boil them for a little bit, and it's delicious. It's sort of like putting cardamom in coffee, right? Similar Exactly. Concept. Exactly. Yeah, it just adds a layer of flavor, a layer of depth to your standard black tea. How come I didn't grow up somewhere where I could say we used to get yogurt from a Bedouin? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Reem Kassis, thank you. I, I love your book. I love the recipes. I think they're highly adaptable to, you know, anybody's home cooking. Um, and I love the food. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. That was Reem Kassis, a Jerusalem-born writer and author of The Palestinian Table. You know, here at Milk Street, we often say that ethnic cooking is, well, dead. Now, we don't mean that local cultures around the world are no longer vibrant or unique or deeply influenced by the past. Instead, we do mean that we all have a lot to learn from each other. I've cooked more than a few recipes from the Palestinian table, and I find that they feel very familiar. Rice stuffed chicken, milk pudding, to the point that the food brings our cultures together. Perhaps cooks from around the world, just like you and me, can sit around the same table and discover that through cooking, we are more alike than we think. After all, sharing food is the world's oldest and most noble tradition. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So now we get to uh, test out my accent. It's always a thrilling moment here at Milk Street, carne adovada, uh, which simply means usually pork, uh, and it's braised a long time in chilies and spices. So you can think of it almost as a chili dish without the beans and everything else. It's, it's pure. Uh, we went to New Mexico, one of our editors did, to find the best place for carne adovada. And uh, he's a biker, as in bicycle, not, not as in Harley Davidson. Went to a bike shop, and they gave him some suggestions. He finally tried a place he loved uh, and had the pure taste of the, the pork, the spices, and the chilies. And he brought that back, and then uh, we got started here. Right, Chris. So I want to warn you, this is a bit of a time-consuming recipe, probably five hours from start to finish. But the best part is that most of that time is hands-off time while the pork is in the oven. So when our editor went to New Mexico, he found that the chilies are really the highlight of this dish. The pork almost takes a back seat to these great chili flavors. So for our version, we wanted to really highlight the chilies. And in ours, we use three ounces of New Mexico chilies. That's probably the most widely available chili. It has a medium spiciness. We went down the Latin food aisle in the supermarket and found Mexican guajillo chilies. They have a fruitiness, a little bit of smoky flavor that really balanced the spiciness of the New Mexican chilies. Um, If you can't find guajillo chilies, you can substitute with all New Mexican chilies. But we really strongly believe that the balance of these two different types is important in this dish. And like I said, typically you can find them in the Latin food aisle of the supermarket. So that's probably the first place I'd look. Where I spend most of my Saturdays every week looking for guajillo chilies. Okay, but you can use all New Mexico if you you can't find it. Okay, then what? So six ounces of chili seems like a lot. I'm sure when I said that, you got a little scared. Don't be afraid. Uh, We (laughs) call for seeding the chilies. Uh, And that's for two reasons. One is to kind of minimize a little bit of that spiciness. And the other is because we make a paste of this in the blender with a little bit of water. And those seeds will not break down. So you'll have those little pieces throughout the dish, uh, which is a little disconcerting. So so are these fresh chilies or these dried chilies? These are dried chilies. So you soak them in hot water to get them softened. And like I said, then blend them in the blender. So to balance out some of this flavor, we added sweetness from onions, which is a debatable ingredient in Santa Fe. We felt like we wanted that balance. Uh, That's softened in a little bit of lard. Uh, And then we add the traditional spices, which is Mexican oregano, cumin, and coriander. So traditionally, since adovada means marinated, I I assume we marinate the pork before we cook it. Aha, we do not. We actually found that we didn't need to. Um, There's so much flavor from these chilies that we actually don't need to marinate the pork. Instead, we just braise it. So it's in the oven for two hours covered. You take the cover off at that point and cook it for another hour and a half. That really concentrates the sauce. Uh, At the very end, we took a little bit of the uh, chili paste and held it aside so that we can add that at the end for a little bit of that bright chili flavor. Um, And then finish it with a little bit of molasses that adds some bitterness and a little bit of sweetness. So you didn't really explain what happens before it goes in the oven. There's no sautéing of meat. I mean, you're basically making a blender sauce 
and throwing that in with the meat in the oven. Anything else? Exactly. Uh, no, you know, we, we do want to make sure when you're prepping the meat that you try and remove as much of the fat as possible. This is a pork butt, which is a pretty fatty cut. You want to make sure you take as much of the fat out before you put it into the sauce or that sauce is going to get a little bit too greasy. But there's not a lot of prep here besides no, that. Okay. No, very easy. So how do we serve this? You can serve it with rice. You can serve it with beans. You can serve it with flour tortillas like a taco with some sour cream, lime juice, cilantro. Or I can completely muck it up like a New Englander. I can have chopped onions, I can have beans, I can have cheddar cheese, and I can serve it Please with Dr. Don't. Pepper. Please don't. <laughs> okay. So carne adovada, it, it, it's all unattended time in the oven, actually not hard to make, and it's the real deal. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can find our recipe for carne adovada at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some phone calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Let's do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Beth. Hi, Beth. How can we help you? Well, this past summer, my husband, my daughter, and I were in Italy, and um, we stayed on the Amalfi Coast. Nice. Uh, My daughter and I were treated to a cooking class, and the main dish was lemon risotto. And while it was delicious, we were kind of surprised that it was very chewy, yeah. much more al dente than I'm used to. And we also found a lot of the pasta that we were served in that area was chewy. And so when I asked about it, I asked the chef, I asked the waiters, they all said the same thing. They said, it's healthier, better for you. And I, I was just wondering if that was true. Hmm. I don't like chewy pasta. And I've been to Italy quite a few times, and mm-hmm. I've never had chewy pasta there either, but maybe there are certain regions of the country that do like it. I mean, a, a friend of mine who was a cooking school teacher in Florence, one of the students kept talking about al dente, and he finally got furious and banged his fist down and said, in Italy, we properly cook our food. <laughs> and, and so I, I just think this al dente thing's been taken to an extreme, if you ask me. But Well, 
I think part of the reason that we don't like the al dente the way they do it is because we're so used to how we do it here, which is much more cooked and sometimes quite mushy. Well, I don't like mushy, but I don't want chewy either. No, but I mean, even Lydia Bastianich, when I've gone to Wadema where she's done a risotto, and it's been a lot crunchier than Mm. I would have made it. You know, so I just think it's a matter of what you've grown up with. I have not seen any serious medical research about eating it al dente being better for you, either pasta or rice. I think it's more a matter of preference. And another thing I would say, because I'm always apologetic, is for Italians, it's about the rice and it's about the pasta. It's not about the sauce. For us, it's about the sauce. I mean, at least for me, it is. Well, that's because they have good pasta and we don't. I don't think it's that. I'm a sauce girl. You know, that's uh, that's why for years I loved veal scallopini because I, I didn't really care about the veal. It's bland. I just like the sauce. So I don't think there's any health reasons for it. I think it's a matter of personal taste. I agree. I don't like mushy. I like it to be firm. But when it's got that uncooked center, no. No. You know, at the end of the day, I think anytime you make a recipe, the first time you make it, you make it exactly the way it's written because the person had a reason for why they wrote it that way. Sometimes, But, yeah. but after that, all bets are off. You do what you want. So if you want your pasta and your risotto cooked more, you cook it more. One quick tip about pasta, though. If you cook it two minutes short of being done and, and finish, finish it, it in, in the, the skillet... Sauce in the sauce, uh, it'll absorb the sauce. And that is fantastic. Instead of some of those bad Italian restaurants where the sauce slides off the top. Right. It'll actually absorb the flavor. And, and that's finish really, cooking in it. And finish cooking in the sauce. And that's a great technique yes. for like a tomato sauce or a creamy sauce. Yes. So, anyway. These are wonderful tips. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for calling. <laughs> Thank you, Beth. <laughs> Thank you Take very care. much. Bye. 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 This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a ring at 855-426-9843. One more time. or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Dave from Milwaukee. Hi, Dave. How can we help you today? I have a question in regard to a friend of mine that had some um, uh, radiation. Uh, He had a little uh, throat cancer in the back of his tongue, and I was wondering if you know of any ways for people who have had some kind of throat malady to improve their taste of food. Oh, you mean so food doesn't taste the same or doesn't taste like much? Well, yeah, and, and his doctor basically told him that he was going to lose some taste and wasn't sure um, how much of the taste that they would get back or whatever. He does have a clean slate as far as the cancer. He's getting some taste back, but he's complaining of food tasting bland, and I was just wondering if there was ways to make food taste better. Well, I know two people who've had this. One was a jogger hit by a car. She wrote a book about it. It took her about a year and just finally came back. I mean, we can give you all sorts of suggestions about how to perk up your food. I mean, there's certainly ingredients. I wouldn't reach for the salt and sugar because that's just not good for you. You know, I would reach instead for the really flavorful spices and herbs and lemon juice and grapefruit juice. You know, in the Middle East, cumin is the black pepper of the Middle East. And we, I have a grinder at home. I have coarse salt and cumin in it. And instead of using salt and pepper, and that works on everything. The other thing you can do is in India, and I, I have this, you can get it on Amazon. There's a metal tin, a round tin, with a series of seven or eight individual containers inside that hold spices or spice blends. And I keep that right next to my dining room table or kitchen table. And I have sitar in it, which is a well-known Middle Eastern spice blend, dukkha. The Japanese make some wonderful blends like togarushi and those things, a little spicy. Sometimes they have seaweed in them or other things. That would be a great suggestion because you can choose what you want with seven or eight different choices from really spicy to just being, you know, sort of cumin-based that's really great. Right. I, I, I think the best advice we can give you is the spice blends and then finishing food off right before you serve it. Grated ginger, grated garlic, a ton of fresh herbs at the end. A acid, little, a little lemon. Acid, lemon, vinegar, a little, chilies. a little sweet, chilies. All of those things just before you serve it like a super stew can make a huge okay. difference. And then having some spice blends available, that's an easy solution. Hopefully that's helpful. All right, thank All right, you very thanks much. Thanks for calling, Dave. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. 
This week's Mill Street Basic is all about peeling ginger. You know, I'm one of the laziest cooks you'll ever meet. In fact, I don't even peel my onions if I'm going to make a stock or a soup, which gets strained out later. It actually adds color. So my question was, do I need to peel ginger? Now, the peelings actually contain some of the ginger compounds, so I thought it would just add flavor. So the kitchen here at Milk Street prepared three things, a soup, a uh, dressing, and also a dipping sauce. Unfortunately for me, it turns out that by not peeling, you get a muddier flavor. We didn't really like it. So the answer to the question, do you need to peel your ginger, is yes, you do if you want a nice, clean, bright flavor. By the way, the best way to do this is with a spoon. You can take the skin off very quickly without losing any of the ginger itself. Here's another tip. You can keep ginger in the freezer for months That way you don't have to throw it out each time you need just a little bit. Cooking beans is fraught with questions. Do you have to pre-soak? What about the quick-soak method? Should you use salted water? How do you keep the skins from coming off? J. Kenji Lopez-Ald, author of the Food Lab and chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats, is here with the answers. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Um, You and I have spent... A few years arguing about beans. I don't know. We have nothing else to do, I guess. <laughs> and how to cook beans and whether to pre-soak them with salt or not or using baking soda and how to get them to cook evenly. You've been at this a long time now. Uh, so mm-hmm. how do you cook beans and what's the science behind it? Most of the time I do it the lazy way. Um, I'll pick a bean that doesn't need to be soaked. So something with a thin skin, like a like a black bean or a black-eyed pea, you know, one of the smaller beans. Um, and then I simply cook them in salted water or stock, maybe add some aromatics. But if you are going to cook a, a thicker bean, like a, like a cannellini or something, something a little bit bigger, thicker, soaking can still help them cook more evenly. The one thing that you do want to do is actually salt that soaking water um, right. and salt the cooking water um, because it, it not only does it help season the beans better, uh, season, you know, the salt does work its way into the beans as it's cooking so that they're seasoned more evenly, but it also actually makes the skins a little bit more tender and helps the skin soften up at about the same rate that the uh, the insides cook. So you end up with beans that are more intact at the end. You l- Less of a risk of the beans sort of blowing out of their skins as they cook. So let's assume you took a, a navy bean or cannellini bean and just threw it in some water and cooked it till they were soft. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that scenario? Well, so the problem is that bean skins are different from bean interiors. You know, beans obviously grow as you cook them. And so if the insides grow faster than the outsides, you know, it's just like it's just like blowing up a balloon and popping it. Um, you run a risk of overinflating those beans hmm. with water, which can cause the skins to uh, burst. And so you end up with beans that are kind of mushy on the inside, but still maybe papery and not even fully cooked with skins on the outside. So you need to hydrate the beans and you also need to cook them. Um, with thicker beans, you need to sort of separate those steps. You need to hydrate them first and then cook them. Uh, We found when making hummus that we cooked the chickpeas a little baking soda, which is an old trick. Mm -hmm. Does that just work with chickpeas? Is that something you've tested with other beans? It'll work with any kind of bean, in fact, any kind of vegetable. Um, Any plant-based thing cooked in alkaline water is going to soften faster. And that's just because pectin, which is sort of the... um, the cement, you know, that holds together vegetable cells. Um, pectin breaks down a lot more readily in alkaline conditions. Um, mm. So adding a little bit of baking soda to your cooking water will help things soften up faster. You know, in, in some cases, you don't really want that. You know, if you, if you add baking soda to the water that you're cooking, say, black beans in, um, they'll turn to mush. But in other cases, if you're making hummus or a puree, for example, um, that's actually a good thing because you really want to break them down. So what, what's the ratio? A teaspoon of baking soda for a gallon of water or, or what? That sounds about right, about a, about a quarter teaspoon baking soda per quart of water. Uh, now, talk to me about using a pressure cooker to cook beans. Well, I mean, pressure cookers, I mean, they, they work by uh, trapping steam, uh, which in turn builds up pressure inside. And that allows water to actually boil at a higher temperature. So um, at sea level, water boils at uh, 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius. Um, in a pressure cooker, you uh, effectively increase the boiling temperature of water to uh, up, up to around maybe 245, 250 degrees. Um, and what this means is that you can cook the beans at a hotter temperature. Um, and more importantly, you can also cook them uh, without agitating agitating them. So there's no rolling boil the way that you would have on a stovetop. Um, so the beans, they end up um, cooking faster and more intact. Kenji, thank you very much. Uh, that's how to cook thick-skinned beans. Thank you. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Halt, author of The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, also chief culinary advisor for Serious Eats. 
Early in the show, when I spoke to Shayna Sheely, I had a thought. You know, I do know a bit about camels. I once walked with a half dozen camels across a very small part of the Sahara Desert. They are intelligent, they can move quickly when prodded, and they never forget a slight. You know, if you mistreat a camel, it will wait for weeks or sometimes months to get even. And for some reason, I find that oddly appealing. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to our website, 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order our new book, The Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. And as MFK Fisher once wrote, dining partners should be chosen for their ability to eat and drink with the right mixture of abandon and restraint. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate producer Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 